Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, my name is Benjamin Hale and I am the debut author of the novel The Evolution of Bruno Littlemore. The novel is written as the memoirs of a talking chimpanzee, the titular Bruno Littlemore. It's a comic novel about language, consciousness, evolution, and what it means to be human. It was published in February by 12 Books. Chapter 1 My name is Bruno Littlemore. Bruno, I was given. Littlemore, I gave myself. And with some prodding, I have finally decided to give this undeserving and spiritually diseased world the generous gift of my memoirs. I give this gift with the aim and hope that they will enlighten, enchant, forewarn, instruct, and perchance even entertain. However, I find the physical tedium of actually writing unendurable. I never bothered learning to type any more adroitly than by use of the embarrassingly primitive hunt-and-peck method. And as for pen and paper, my hands are awkwardly shaped and tire easily of etching out so many small, fastidious markings. That is why I have decided to deliver my memoirs by dictation. And because voice recorders detest me for the usual reasons, I must have an amanuensis. Right now, it is 11.15 in the morning on a drably nondescript day in September. I am lying partially supine and extremely comfortably on a couch, my shoes off but my socks on, a glass of iced tea tinkling peacefully in my hand, and there is a soft-spoken young woman named Gwyn Gupta sitting in this very room with me, recording my words in a yellow notepad with a pencil and a laser-like sense of concentration. Gwyn, my amanuensis, is a college student employed as an intern at the research center where I am housed. It is she who acts as midwife to these words which my mind conceives and my lungs and tongue bear forth, delivering them from my mouth and by the sheer process of documentation, imbuing them with the solemnity and permanence of literature. Now to begin. Where should I begin, Gwen? No, don't speak. I'll begin with the first time I met Lydia, because Lydia is the reason why I am here. The first time I met Lydia, I was so young and uncontaminated by the world that I didn't even know I was participating in a scientific experiment. I was brought into a strange, blank, white room. Everyone's shoes squeaked on the hard, shiny floor, and the high-frequency buzzing of the fluorescent lights overhead made me jittery and discombobulated. The three of us, I, Bruno, my idiot brother, Cookie, and little Celeste, were led out of the cage in which they had conveyed us to this alien room, to allow us a little time to acclimate ourselves to these surroundings at our leisure, to accustom our eyes to the stinging brightness, to meet the scientists. That's when I met Lydia. She bent to the floor and held her arms open for me, and I ran to her and climbed into them, and for the rest of the day that was where I stayed, cradled in her arms, breathing her amazing scent that I even then must have found erotic, except when she was too busy with her work or when they ripped us apart so that they could run their moronic experiments on me. I suppose I shouldn't say moronic, because that experiment was what marked me as different right from the beginning. Of course, I had no idea what was going on at the time. I had not yet acquired language, so I couldn't have articulated my thoughts. That, by the way, is the ironic thing about acquiring language relatively late in life. Words simply don't exist to adequately describe what it's like, 
when that tempest of wordless thoughts whirling around in your head suddenly snaps to definition. That great hop from the prelinguistic to the linguistic is squarely in the realm of the ineffable. As far as I knew, all that was going on was this. I was taken into a small, empty white room with a long, rectangular, reflective panel embedded in one wall. I now realized this was a one-way mirror, behind which another scientist was probably watching me like a voyeur with an eye to a keyhole. The scientist who had conducted me into the room was not the woman whom I would later come to know was Lydia. Was that you watching me from behind the mirror, Lydia? But some droll old fat-bearded sot who held no especial interest for me. There was a transparent plastic box on the floor. The scientist, produced from the pocket of his white coat with the excessively theatrical flourish of an amateur magician, a peach. A peach, Gwen. He was my serpent, and I was his Eve. There we were, me in my prelapsarian nudity, and he in his demonic white coat, tempting me with fruit, coveted but prohibited. The only difference was environmental. We'd swapped sexy Edenic lushness for the sterile, whitewashed walls of science. Also, that particular fruit is semiotically associated with the female Pudinda, isn't it? Isn't that why Cezanne painted them? Still life with peaches? Why, that's just a quivering bowlful of vulva sweating on the breakfast table, waiting for you to eat them up. But the peach in question. So he takes, this scientist does, he takes a juicy piggish bite out of it and starts making yummy-yum-yum noises. Mmm, rubbing his belly, trying to goad my jealousy, you see. And as I recall, it worked. I was a simpler creature then. I remember wanting the peach at that moment more than anything. Hell, I would have sold my soul for a peach, and in a way I did, didn't I? I remember hating, no, loathing, that old, smug, fat, imperious blob for the way he lorded the fruit over me so. So he took his bite, breaking the skin, releasing into the room the ambrosial aroma of the sticky, wet, fleshy treat, and then he, bastard, pushed me out of the way when I reached for it. Then, turning to the box, transparent plastic box on the floor, remember, he operated some sort of device which made the lid spring open, placed the peach inside, and shut the lid. I was watching his actions with curiosity and a motley of deadly sins. Greed, envy, gluttony, lust. Then, the demonstration. The box opening mechanism consisted of a button and a lever. He pressed the button, then rapped on the lid of the box three times with his knuckles, like this. Then he flipped the lever, and the lid of the box popped open. He reached in, and, again, moving his arms in such a grossly histrionic manner, it was as if he wanted the people in the nosebleed seats to see what he was doing, and making a face like, Look, Bruno, what do we have here? He extracted the peach. Again, I reached for it. Again, he pushed me away. Then he put the peach back in the box, promptly left the room, and pulled the door shut behind him. Bruno was alone. Alone with the box, with the peach clearly visible, but locked away inside, forbidden to Bruno. I looked at it a moment. I pressed the button, knocked three times on the lid, flipped the lever, opened the box, and removed the peach. Did I dare to eat a peach? Indeed I did. In this way, I fell from my state of innocence. The door opened. I was escorted out, and my brother, Cookie, in, where I understand the same procedure was repeated on him. A little while later... All three of us, Cookie, Celeste, and I, had made it through the first round, and I was taken back into the room when they decided enough time had elapsed to renew my appetite. Only this time. This time it was Lydia, gorgeous-smelling Lydia, my human peach, 
who attended me into the little room with the box. Just being alone in a room with that woman was enough. And now she removed a peach from the pocket of her white coat. She took a sopping wet bite out of it and took her sweet time chewing. Then she placed the peach inside the box, waited a moment, pressed the button, knocked her knuckles in the lid of the box three times, flipped the lever that opened the box and retrieved the peach. After locking it up again, she left the room, though I entreated her to stay. Alone, I again in turn pressed the button, tap, tap, tapped, flipped the lever, and proceeded to feast. But this peach tasted so much richer than the first, as it was imbued with the magic of her touch, with her lips no less, her tongue. I had seen that woman put her mouth on this object. The vicarious contact made me insane with desire. I would have preferred her to chew the peach to a pulp and sensuously ooze it intermingled with her own fluids into my mouth. I ate every shred of the thing, every last ort and fiber and dribble of nectar, and then sucked on the stone for an hour after and became enraged, enraged when the other scientists tried to take it from me. I kept it securely in the pocket of my cheek and would under no circumstances relinquish it until, yes... Lydia, Lydia herself, coaxed me to surrender it by holding her hand to my mouth, and, finally, I willingly spat the stone, slick with my saliva, into the cup of her pretty hand. Anyway, this bizarre and, to me at the time, unfathomable procedure was repeated again and again all day until it looked like we'd all had our fill of their goddamn peaches. Much later, Dr. Lydia Littlemore would explain to me why my performance on that day had marked me as extraordinary. In retrospect, I understand now what I could only feel at the time. As I've said, I did not yet have language. This is not to say that I did not have a consciousness in those days, or that I did not have thoughts. I certainly did, but I had none of these traps in which to capture and keep them. Words. Back then, my thoughts could only trickle through my head in a liquid state. Trying to think clearly was like trying to drink water out of cupped hands. Most of it drips through your fingers before you've really had a chance to drink, and you remain thirsty still, thirsty and ignorant. When my consciousness was solidified enough to understand, Lydia told me that I had participated in a psychological experiment they were running on two groups, human infants and pre-adolescent chimpanzees. The experiment goes like this. You have this transparent plexiglass box with a door that can be opened by a mechanism requiring a two-step process to unlatch. Press the button and flip the lever. You place inside the box something the infant or chimpanzee is supposed to want, in my case, a peach. And this, in my opinion, is the most problematic aspect of the experiment. What complex being will always want a peach? Suppose I wasn't hungry. Am I supposed to be a creature of such brainlessly insatiate appetite that given the opportunity I would cram every last peach on the planet into my ravenous maw? Later in my life, when I was sitting in on an introductory course in microeconomics at the University of Chicago, I realized that economists tend to think about their fellow sapiens sapiens in exactly these terms. Rational choice theory, so they call it. Homo economicus. Fools! The thing that defines us rational creatures, like you and me, Gwen, is precisely the fact that we're not always rational. But I digress. So you put the peach in the box and then demonstrate to the subject how to open it. The scientist presses the button, taps three times in the lid of the box, and flips the lever. Then leave the test subject alone. Watch, see what he does. Then repeat this procedure ad nauseum on the largest test sampling you can get. The objective of the experiment is to see whether the human or ape child figures out that the tapping on the box bit is an unnecessary step. 
Their typically anthropo-chauvinist hypothesis was that all your innately superior little human snots would quit tapping on the stupid box before the chimps. And the results were exactly the opposite of their predictions. All but one of the chimps, and they tested more than 50 of us and as many human infants, quickly figured out that the tapping shtick was a superfluous waste of time and thus aborted the measure from the box-opening procedure on the second or third trial run. A few of the chimpanzee subjects, my older brother, Cookie, among them, and this sort of behavior was characteristic of him, on the third trial run got the box open simply by picking it up and smashing it against a wall. The humans, though, the human babies would faithfully tap on the box every time, every one, every time. Now, Gwen, what do you think this means? I'll tell you. It means this. For the human test subjects, the whole thing was less about the reward than it was about the process. You see, it wasn't so much that they wanted the peach as to participate in this enigmatic ritual to perform the rite to say their prayers. Because it's you humans who have your absurdities of faith your superstitions, your banshees and hobgoblins, your necromancies and haruspices, your charms and potions and voodoo dolls and magic mirrors and boogeymen, you who infantilize the universe by vainly searching for celestial answers to earthly questions in the movements of the stars, you who have your signs and symbols, your signifiers and signifieds, you who cast a terror-stricken backward glance into the darkness and ask yourselves who is that third who walks always beside you, you who chant your incantations, kiss the ring and cross yourselves, sear images into your flesh and poke holes in yourselves, hack off parts of your bodies and paint yourselves blue, burn witches and sacrifice your firstborns, scream into the whirlwind and wrestle with the angels to the break of dawn. And they thought we would be the ones to continue squandering a few precious seconds that stood between us and those delicious peaches by tapping on the box, even when the action obviously affected no empirical change upon the object. Absurd. It is only rubbing on the lamp. It is only magic. It is only religion. It is only the shadow of the hand of God. It is only one more example illustrating how feebly you people know yourselves. Anyway, point being, who is the one and only chimpanzee among the hundred-some-plus sampling of members of my own birth species, pan-troglodytes, who, like the human children, never ceased to tap on the box? That's right, c'est moi. I, Bruno, somehow understood, on some fundamental level, as Lydia realized in hindsight, after the experiment was over and the unexpected results had been properly tabulated, scrutinized, and pondered over until they succeeded in twisting some anthropo-chauvinist take out of the data, what it means to be human. And Lydia remembered me, me, Bruno, the chimpanzee who had fallen in love with her, and she sought me out, and she found me, and she began to bring me out of my animal darkness. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.